Hey guys, welcome to the Persons with Lived Experience podcast, inspiring stories for unprecedented times with Dixie and Zona. I think one thing that I've learned is that, you know, when you're in a situation like trafficking and the way that they condition you, your moral compass is so like, you know, if I, if he asked me to murder somebody and then asked me to steal a piece of candy, well, stealing that piece of candy doesn't seem so bad because of the things that he already asked me to do. Mm-hmm. And so kind of similarly to that, it, it started out, he would make me watch porn. Um, mm. And again, at the time, I didn't realize where this was going. I just thought, you know, he wanted me to know how to do things in the bedroom. But mm-hmm. now looking back, I can say, you know, he made me watch these things so that when buyers and Johns would come in, it wouldn't be so shocking. This podcast contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions and take precautions for yourself. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dixie. I'm all about joy, justice, and fair trade fashion. I'm an anti-trafficking advocate, mom of many, and passionate worshiper. And I'm Zona. I'm a writer, speaker, a person with lived experience of human trafficking and homelessness, a tiny house enthusiast, and a serial foodie. And we have Hannah with us today. She holds a BA in sociology, will graduate in May with an MA in social justice and human rights. Super impressive. Mm -hmm. She's a board member for two anti-trafficking organizations, has held leadership positions within numerous nonprofits, and serves as a survivor consultant for Polaris Project and DHS's Blue Campaign. She is a member of the National Survivor Alliance, the Global Association of Human Trafficking Scholars, and HEAL Trafficking, a community of multidisciplinary professionals working in the intersection of human trafficking and healthcare. She has interned for the Nexus Working Group on Human Trafficking and Sexual Exploitation, and also the Dressember Foundation. Welcome, Hannah. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We're so glad that you're here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Uh, Well, we would love to hear your story and just kind of walk us through all of these um, great things that you're doing. I actually was adopted. My biological mom, she was a drug addict. She had five of us. We're all a year apart and we all have different dads. So it was just, you know, really a not good situation. Um, And I was right in the middle and I was the only one she gave up for adoption. Hmm. And I struggled with that for a really long time, which we can get into this later if you want to, but at 25 years old, now learning an alternative narrative to the fairy tale narrative of adoption and realizing that there are things like relinquishment trauma that literally affected me from the time I took my first breath. And so that in combination with, um, I had a lot of childhood abuse, um, sexual abuse from a family member, Um, you know, different things like that. I think that and the adoption trauma compounded and made me a really good target for trafficking. (laughs) Um, Especially also just, um, I was raised in a very religious household. 
and the breadth of purity culture. And so, you know, we were raised that, hey, this is the kind of man you need to be praying for. You know, this is, you know, if he checks these boxes, future husband material. And trafficker met that criteria. Um, uh-huh. I met him in a bar. I had just turned 21. It was the first time I had ever been out to a bar because I was a goody goody. Um, <laughs> my parents were really strict as well. So there really wasn't much opportunity for that. Mm-hmm. So I went out to a bar, did not hold my alcohol well, <laughs> um, ended up getting kicked out. But in that time frame, I met this man. He was in the military. And like I said, he checked all my boxes. Um, I like to say, you know, he could charm a fish out of water. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was a gentleman. He he was what I was taught to pray for. And so I jumped in on that full force. Um, I gave him my virginity. Um, it was just a really unhealthy relationship from the start, but I wasn't at a place where I could recognize that because as crazy as this sounds, I never realized my childhood was abnormal. Like what's that quote? Um, if you're, burn if you're born in a burning house you don't realize the rest of the world's not on fire Mm -hmm. and so it wasn't until I interned at an orphanage in Nicaragua after I graduated high school that I realized okay what I went through was not okay that's not what everybody else's childhood looked like and so I was still I was dealing with that and was not in a good place mentally and emotionally and I think he picked up on that um so yeah, it just kind of took off from there. Um, just a really unhealthy relationship. Um, I don't know how long we quote unquote dated before he began trafficking me. Um, but the physical abuse started out pretty quickly. Uh, the emotional abuse, uh, he put a GPS on my car, he went through my phone. And now looking back, I can see how strategic he was with it all. Mm-hmm. Um, like even just with isolation isolating me like he would go through my phone and read my messages and start picking out conversations and be like well what what did they mean by that Mm -hmm. and I'd be like well you know that they didn't mean anything by it And he was like no no this is what I think they meant and so I would pick fights with people because I allowed him to sway me and believe that everybody was against me and yeah (laughs) yeah right No common. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by the generous donations of the supporters of bringfreedom.org. Through your support, through our Venmo at Bring Freedom, we are able to support the persons with lived experience who are brave enough to share their stories here and avoid re-traumatization by them having to give away their story or their services for free. While still maintaining these types of trainings as well as the all for one challenge that we have coming up on November 18th and 19th at no cost to you in order to completely end human trafficking in your community. 
If you would like to be one of the supporters of bringfreedom.org, you can visit our website or you can make a tax-deductible donation to our Venmo at Bring Freedom. Thank you. Bring Freedom's live anti-trafficking inspiration event is coming up on November 18th and 19th. Sign up for the All for One Challenge today. You don't want to miss this. So how did that transition into trafficking? I think one thing that I've learned is that you know, when you're in a situation like trafficking and the way that they condition you, your moral compass is so like, you know, if I, if he asked me to murder somebody and then asked me to steal a piece of candy, well, stealing that piece of candy doesn't seem so bad because of the things that he already asked me to do. Mm-hmm. And so kind of similarly to that, it, it started out, he would make me watch porn, um, mm. And again, at the time, I didn't realize where this was going. I just thought, you know, he wanted me to know how to do things in the bedroom. But Mm -hmm. now looking back, I can say, you know, he made me watch these things so that when buyers and Johns would come in, it wouldn't be so shocking. Like I, I was desensitized. Um, And so that's where it started. And, you know, we talked a lot about what makes people vulnerable to trafficking you know with poverty addiction uh, mental health issues past abuse but I think one of the biggest things that we leave out is loneliness Mm -hmm. uh, belonging and having connection they're literally at the core of the human experience and I was desperate for that and I think also realizing what I had been through as a kid I thought it was just me like Mm -hmm. the first time he hit me I was like okay like this is, this is just my lot in life. Like this is what the rest of my life is going to look like. So why even bother to fight it? And so he was a big partier. We went to farm parties all the time. Um, I don't know if you guys know what that is. Uh huh. Yeah. So I don't know how I'm alive right now, but, um, so I, I remember the first time it happened, he took me in the back bedroom and he had one of his buddies back there and, I resisted at first, but I remember him shoving me against the wall and putting his hands around my throat and telling me that he owned me. And at that point, I, I don't know, something in me just kind of broke. And I was like, I'm not even going to fight this. Like, why? Why fight it? And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it just kind of went from there. Um, He never let us do street drugs, but prescription pills were always on the table. So I was always high always drunk um i definitely understand that um it is crazy how much um prescription things are looked at as a better alternative mm -hmm. but it's just as damaging yeah and Uh, they're not used the way they're supposed to right you know they're supposed to be under doctor's care with you know, full, yeah, <laughs> full observation for the thing that they're meant for, and nothing else. <laughs> right. Um, Combining them and you know using them with alcohol, it was just 
like I said, I, it is a wonder <laughs> mm-hmm. how I am still here right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we're definitely glad that you are. Yeah. Uh, so how did you get out of that? So the, I had a friend, she was the only one who really stuck by me through all of this, like despite the picking fights and the conflict and mm-hmm. um, trafficking wasn't as big of a thing then as it is now um that was I met him Halloween 2016 and I was one of those people who thought oh trafficking happens overseas I had seen taken like it had never even dawned on me that this could possibly be a trafficking situation I just thought oh I have a crappy boyfriend you know he makes me do scary stuff but that that was the tip of it Mm-hmm. And so I go out to coffee with this friend and she's like, you know, I, I know something's going on. Like, what is happening? Because you're different. I'm sensing things are not okay. And so mm-hmm. I told her because I didn't, I didn't know. And she was like, okay, that that's trafficking. And I remember mm-hmm. literally laughing in her face. I was like, you're dumb. <laughs> right. And she was like, no, that that's trafficking and it's not okay. And my trafficker at the time was in the military. And so she was like, why don't we go to the military police? Because, you know, military and civilian law and the legal system are different. Yeah. And she was like, we don't have to file a report. We don't have to press charges. Let's just go talk to them. And I was like, okay. I think I was too kind of shocked to say no. Right. So we go and the lady just starts hammering me with questions. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very personal, very graphic and intimate questions Mm-hmm. Um, asking what he made me do in the bedroom, uh, different things like that. And the language she used was very victim blaming. Uh, um, wow. So what, what did you do to make him approach you? What did you say? What did you, what did you? And I just sat there. Uh, I didn't, I didn't say a word. Uh, I don't think I knew what to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember her sliding her card across the table to me and telling me that when I was ready to be honest and truthful about my situation, to give her a call. And she thanked me for wasting her time as she got up and walked out. Oh. oh. Yeah. And I just remember getting back in my car and falling to pieces because he had told me from the get-go that if I ever tried to make a report, nobody would believe me, uh, mm-hmm. that I would be arrested for solicitation and all of these different things. And so that interaction with that officer really just reinforced everything that he had said. And so all I could think was, okay, well, if he was right about that, then he was right about everything else. Like he was right mm-hmm. that he owns me. He was right that I'm worthless and that the only thing I'm here for is for him. And so looking back, I can see that that could have been a very pivotal point in my story, sure. but instead I went back to be trafficked for several more months. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I'm so sorry that that happened. Yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, it, I get to train law enforcement and I get to use that experience to educate and show people like, Hey, this is why it's important for you to have trauma-informed and survivor-centered interactions with survivors. Um, so you know what? It's all right. It's being used. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, did that, what did that friend's reaction, like, how did she react to that experience? She was very level-headed, but that's just kind of how she is. She's considerably older than me. Mm -hmm. Um, and unbeknownst to me at the time, her and her husband actually started an anti-trafficking organization more so on the, you know, they would go in and help bring women and kids out. Mm-hmm. Um, but so she she had experience with that. And I didn't even know it at the time. It's kind of crazy to think about that. You know, I don't believe in coincidences. And um, so she just kind of guided me through that. She's still very active in my life. Um, I've known her for seven years. And yeah, she... <laughs> but the the great thing is is that she's stuck by you yeah, yeah. yes so. she has loved me well um and i think that's one of the things that people miss when you're in a situation where you are being trafficked or even if it's you know domestic violence intimate partner violence of any sort like the best thing that you can do is stick by them mm-hmm through the things that are going on, not take offense, not take it personally, um, not, you know, try to have them quote unquote, see reason. Mm -hmm. Cause sometimes that just takes away their choices too. And doesn't allow them to make a good choice for themselves to exit. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, September is suicide um, awareness month and, Mm -hmm suicide is so so prevalent and suicidal ideations are prevalent in the survivor community and I was doing a thing on social media the other day about you know suicide prevention is is supporting survivors because that support component is so critical uh, not just during the life but when you're out of it Mm -hmm. Um, you know we have that social isolation and then we get out of it and there's the social ostracization and the stigma and you know I get it trafficking is a heavy topic and I think it boils down to a lot of people don't know what to do in the face of it Mm -hmm. valid it's that's that's a valid thing but it's also 2022 almost 2023 like we got to do better right absolutely We absolutely do. Um, so what was the point where you actually were able to finally like get away? Oh man. Um, so I always assumed that he had connections higher up. Like he always knew when they were going to be drug tested, you know, he always knew those things. And so it wasn't long after I went to the military police that I'm assuming he found out about it. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, became dangerous and I know that sounds silly but at that point I didn't care about myself um and but I cared about my roommates I had two roommates they were my best friends in the entire world Mm -hmm. and we reached a point between me going to the military police and you know you you build up um what's the word you know you start if I drink a bottle of vodka every day at some point I'm gonna have to up my alcohol intake because it's not gonna affect me the same and so reaching that point where I was a little less compliant unless I had I was more and more inebriated 
And so he threatened my roommates. And I remember literally feeling my blood run cold throughout my entire body because I knew if he said he was going to hurt them, he would follow through with that. Right. And so I ended up coming clean to my roommates. You know, we all, two of us were in school. We were all working. It wasn't hard to say, oh, you know, I got an overnight nanny job and that's why I'm not home at night or different things like that. And so things moved pretty swiftly after that. Honestly, it's kind of a blur. Um, My roommate had a family friend who was just a wealthy older gentleman. And it sounds sketchy, but it wasn't like that. (laughs) Um, So he paid for us to move from Mobile, Alabama to Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. And he moved upstairs. We had the whole bottom, bottom part of the house. He didn't make us pay rent. We didn't have to pay groceries. Um, it was, it was a huge blessing. Um, but unfortunately about four months after we moved in, he actually passed away, which was very difficult because I, yeah, you know, freedom felt good at first. It felt good Mm -hmm. at first. And then everything kind of settled in and I was not knowledgeable about trauma. I had no idea about complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. Um, so things started to hit. Um, and I had actually been in college when I met my trafficker, ended up flunking out for obvious reasons. So I didn't have a college degree. Um, I had no money. And so, you know, when you move into an apartment, a rental home, you've got the security deposit, you've got first month's rent, you've got the fees and all those things to cut utilities on in your name. And I, I didn't have any money. I had no way to earn a living for myself so I turned to what I knew and started escorting online um which is actually how I got pregnant with my son who is the most amazing blessing and I would not be here probably if it were not for him um so yeah we were able to get plugged into some anti-trafficking resources in the community um I went back to school after I don't know he was maybe six months um and yeah we've just hopefully been on an upward twent upward trend since then (laughs) yeah well I mean obviously you've done amazing things since I mean you're graduating with your MA yeah I I love what I do I also have to give credit to imposter syndrome (laughs) (laughs) you know once I reached a certain point I knew I wanted to go back and work in the anti-trafficking field, but because mm-hmm. I didn't have a bachelor's degree, no one would hire me. My right. lived experience didn't matter. It doesn't matter for like government and state jobs. And so I think I reached a point where I got so sick and tired of people telling me I was unqualified that I'm like, no one will ever be able to tell me that again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Yeah. I, I do still think that that's really crazy, though, because I see that so often where they'll look at something and they'll say, oh, well, you really can't make that decision. It's like, but I know what the barriers are because I came out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so and I get that to a degree. Um, but these were jobs, you know, I easily could have worked because um, I get it. You know, just because I'm a survivor does not mean you know I can adequately provide peer support or you know living through a fire doesn't make me an arson expert you know I had to have the education I had to have the training um but realizing 
I don't want to be unqualified anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I went back, started my master's program a few months after I graduated with my bachelor's, mm-hmm. um, which I love hoping to go to law school, maybe the fall of next year. So trying to figure things out. Um, <laughs> I actually had my trafficker come back into my life at the end of last year, um, huh? which is why, you know, we moved in May. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so been another hard, hard transition, but again, mm-hmm. just trying to move forward and make steps in the right direction. Sure. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that process of what you were I'm obviously not asking you to tell us where you moved. I'm just saying, um, <laughs> like, deciding, you know, that that is going to be the best option is to go ahead and pack up and, and move on to a different area. Talking about the first time or the second time? Either one, because I think that's something that people don't understand. And I know that I I experienced that quite a bit. And it's almost like people looked at me like... I was flaky <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm like, I'm not flaky, but I do have a survival instinct that kicks in. Yeah. I'd rather move than die. <laughs> I know. It's like, if you want me to like get murdered, just say so. Like, right. um, I've heard that too, especially now. So my son is three mm-hmm. um, and I've gotten a lot of flack. Um, so last year I had to move back to my hometown in Alabama mm-hmm. um, for financial reasons my roommate moved out and so that was a big move um and then last November I moved 18 hours across the country to go into a residential program mm-hmm. which okay. was a negative very negative experience um oh, so we were only there for three weeks moved back to Alabama mm-hmm. and then this past May we left Alabama you know we're in Airbnbs, hotels, couch surfing, officially moved 10 hours away in June. Mm-hmm. So I've gotten a lot of flack as a single mom. Um, you know, hey, your kid's three. He needs structure. He needs stability. And, you know, that echoed in my head a lot during this most recent process because mm-hmm. there was so much back and forth um, mm-hmm. my between like I said, Airbnbs, hotels, um, the organization that had promised to support me financially with rental assistance pulled my rental assistance twice. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So it, and at one point I was like, you know, when am I going to put myself on the back burner and put my son first? Yeah. Because, you know, my trafficker and I had an agreement. I know this sounds nuts and people are probably going to think I'm crazy, um, but I showed up for work at night. He did not bother me at my home. So I put my son to bed. A sitter came over, stayed the night. I showed up the next morning before my son was awake. So nothing changed for him. Mm-hmm. But I had a friend bring it up to me. And honestly, I never even thought of this, but she was like, you know, what happens if a buyer goes to your trafficker and wants to buy a little boy? Mm-hmm. He knows he yeah. has a- to your son and that was very chilling for me and so kind of grounded me a little bit more right and trying to remind myself you know I'm not moving for the heck of it um this has not been a good time like (laughs) I'm not moving you know for silly reasons but it has literally been a life or death situation right and I mean 
your your son needs his mom. Yeah. Yeah. Real- ultimately, ultimately, he needs you. Mm-hmm. He needs to be safe. He needs to feel loved. Mm-hmm. At this age, it's not like he's in school. He doesn't no. need super structure. Right. Yeah. So, well, we are. I know that you probably hear this all the time, but we are so proud of you making mm-hmm. the decisions that you've needed to in order to protect your child and you know as difficult as those places have been and as hard as it is <laughs> to go to a program and be like man I, I really need help and then to have it fall through and to have it fall through multiple times can be so discouraging yes and I think it's you know part of that betrayal trauma to have mm-hmm. the people who have pledged to support you because that's why I left ultimately in May. That is why I left because this is, this was an organization that I worked for. Um, And we have since we are on good terms and I'm actually still doing a little freelancing for them, but Mm -hmm. it was, everything was just, it doesn't and didn't make sense. So I had an advocate here where I am worst advocate I've ever had in my life um just because she doesn't she doesn't know what she's doing um so there was a space in between when my Airbnb was up and when I could move into my rental home Mm -hmm. I was you know a few days and my advocate was like well go back go back to Alabama you know it's just a few days you got to have a place to stay and at the time you know when you're in these high stress situations that rational part of your brain is completely shut down Mm -hmm. and so I know I'm responsible for my own choices but I also put a lot of trust in her because she was my advocate and so I went back to Alabama my trafficker found out I was there um Mm -hmm. I tried to leave in the middle of the night and he actually ran my son and I off the road and we totaled my car oh yeah so it was just like man one thing after another (laughs) yeah yeah. Well, and one of those things too that is such a a key component for survivors having vehicles and access to, you know, getting yeah. out, getting getting back and forth to work, getting you know around <laughs> where you need to get to, um, is so much easier if you're able to have a car and. Yeah. And I was really, I'm blessed because my car was fully insured and my dad actually owns a car dealership. So I was able to get another car pretty quickly and get out of town, but mm-hmm. it was just, yeah. It it was just that, you know, next level of mm-hmm. now I got to deal with this thing too. And when you're, again, when you're in that situation, everything feels like the end of the world mm-hmm. and it, I don't know. I one thing after another, like getting denied for a student loan because my trafficker ran up my credit, so I didn't know how I was going to pay tuition. Uh, having him drain my bank account, di- mm-hmm. you know, different things like that. One thing after another, and you know they just accumulate. Um, you're 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 in fight or flight. You don't feel safe. You're exhausted. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. I yeah, it was. It's a hard time, and I don't think people people don't realize that um you know healing from trafficking and getting out of the game is the beginning Mm -hmm. you know I feel like we don't get enough credit for what it takes to 
heal from trafficking. And maybe that's, I don't know, tooting my own, own horn, but you know, healing from trafficking, it's fought for, bled for, cried for, uh, hard won. Yes. And, and I'm just a firm believer that, yes, you can experience healing, but I don't think you ever graduate from healing from trafficking. <laughs> yeah. It's a process. Mm-hmm. And not a linear one of that. No. <laughs> Oh, I wish it was. That would be so much easier. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So what are the things that you have kind of, I mean, because I mean, obviously you've worked for some really great organizations. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about some of the advocacy that you've done? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, most of my work with anti-trafficking organizations has really been more side on, you know, behind the stage. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of marketing and communications, fundraising. Uh, I do a lot of writing. So a lot of my advocacy work has really just been of my own fruition, mm-hmm. um, which I have taken a step back with that, obviously, in the Mm -hmm. last few months. I'm not working hands-on with survivors right now, Mm -hmm. Um, but that is what I'm passionate about. That is my long-term goal, Mm -hmm. but right now, you know, I'm just kind of doing what I can. Um, You know, last year when I moved back to my hometown in Alabama, I live in the boonies. (laughs) Yeah. So there were no opportunities for me to work hands-on with survivors. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of why I made that transition to more of the online things. Okay. Um, So I just, I do a lot of technical trainings. Um, I do a lot of (laughs) podcast interviews, a lot of consulting work. So that's about the extent of my advocacy right now. Hey, that is plenty. (laughs) That is definitely plenty. Um, Just trying to kind of look through here because you had sent in a questionnaire. And um, what are ways that you've kind of built in some supports around yourself um, for your mental health or therapy, working through different processes? That has been another thing that has been hard won. Because I am learning, you know, my therapist told me, my therapist is, she's a Christian and I am too, but she was, she has lectured me multiple times on me casting my pearls before uh, swines, Um, Hmm. regurgitating my trauma story in a way to almost self-sabotage be like okay they're gonna leave me so let me go ahead and trauma dump and then go ahead and get it over with so I've had to be very proactive and very intentional with my community building Mm -hmm. um because that has been very difficult for me um so that looks like you know I have multiple mentors I have my therapist I have a couple of really close friends, but I've had to keep my support system small. Mm-hmm. Um, again, because people are not knowledgeable about complex trauma and what it looks like to overcome that. And so learning to guard myself in that way, because I have never been very good at that. Um, and I honestly, especially with the last few months, I feel like I've gone through more trauma trying to get out of the game than I did when I was in it. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
That's and a lot of that is because people don't know what they're doing. So the mm-hmm. same way, you know, that I vet organizations for girls coming out of the game. Mm-hmm. I've learned to vet people and organizations for myself. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> no, I, I think it does. I think um, I was talking to somebody who um, I, I was talking to somebody yesterday, actually, and they were um, wanting to be in the process of somebody else getting out of the game. Mm-hmm. And and I was just saying, you know, I I don't think that this person is the person for you to help. Yeah. And as much as you love them and as much as you want them to be successful, um, having the understanding that you might not be the best solution for them is just as important as them not being the best solution for you. And yeah. being able to put those boundaries in place, I think is really healing. And um, it's okay even to renegotiate boundaries throughout a relationship. And I think that's something that when your boundaries have been so violated and your you know, your morals have been questioned things that you're like, I would never do this. When those things have happened, um, sometimes we forget that it's okay to set good boundaries or to vet people or to decide, Hey, I might have this friend, but this is a, this is a surface level friend yeah. and talk about surface level things, but it's not necessarily somebody I share my heart with. Yeah. I, and it's even people <laughs> close to you. I'm learning. That. like I had she was one of my best friends mm-hmm. helping her get out of the game the last few months and you know survivors can be manipulative it's a survival mm-hmm. time I mean let's be real they mm-hmm. can be manipulative they can be unstable I have yet to meet a survivor that at some point has not been meets the criteria for borderline personality disorder which you know I feel gets a really bad rap but mm-hmm. I feel that borderline is a trauma response it is because I know survivors who've healed from it yeah but helping this particular survivor out of the game you know she would FaceTime me and show me her stash of pills and tell me she was going to kill herself and um helping get her into programs only to be kicked out because she's not compliant or whatever and so realizing like I got. I need to put boundaries even up with things like that because I think what I've learned from talking to so many survivors of trafficking and even more specifically, you know, childhood trauma, which a lot of times that's interconnected. Mm-hmm. Right. It's you know after going through all of these painful traumatic experiences, we have this deep longing, you know, to feel needed, to feel validated, and to feel valued and as we go through these experiences, we lack the ability to set a standard for what we deserve. We, we lack the ability to instill healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that is because with trafficking survivors and children who've been abused, we're not allowed, uh, in a lot of cases, never even had the chance to learn what healthy boundaries are. Mm-hmm. You know, being trafficked, your needs are his needs yeah your needs are the buyer's needs that's part of the trauma bonding process right like losing Mm -hmm. your identity losing your sense of self and so it's really hard to 
put that into practice in your healing walk. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Very true. So um, with like your story, I know that there was a couple other pieces that we hadn't had a chance to talk about. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share today as part of your story, your experience um, for those that are listening? Um, I mean, I don't think so. We've kind of touched base on everything. Um, probably survivor inclusion has been a really big part of my journey. Um, recognizing its importance and realizing how fundamental it is to this anti-trafficking field um it's been a big part of why i do what i do for for those that are listening that don't know what survivor inclusion is can you kind of give an example for sure uh you know survivor inclusion survivor leadership um realizing that people with lived experience are the ones who need to be leading this movement um you know nothing us you know we we're the first witnesses of how trafficking takes place we know firsthand what might work to prevent and early identify potential victims we are the most knowledgeable about how trafficking traffickers operate um where we know firsthand what victims coming out of the game need the most yeah you Mm -hmm. know and because i it can't <laughs> I, get, I get very passionate about this because I don't I don't ever want to discount someone's trauma, you know, complex trauma experiences the trauma, you know, we all relate we have that collective experience. And I don't ever want to discount someone's seat at the table if they're not a survivor that don't mm-hmm. get me wrong, that's not what I'm saying. But survivors we have to be at the center mm-hmm. you know we survivor inclusion having survivor leaders on the board informing your policies that can't just be a box that you check right mm-hmm. and so it's just you you can you can read all the books you can listen to all the podcasts you can do all the research get all the degrees but nothing will be a substitute for lived experience. And that's in anything. You know, I'm not going to go lead a support group for widowers because there is no way I could relate to a woman losing her husband. That's I can empathize. I can show sympathy, but you're never going to fully grasp what they go through. Yeah, And it's the same way. It's with any social justice movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Well, and I think too, part of that is the difference, like we were talking with um, another podcast guest and they were saying it's the difference between an organization wanting to raise money and to be a part of, you know, a part of the anti-trafficking movement versus an organization that wants to end human trafficking. Yes, when the consequence, one of the consequences to survivor exclusion is tokenization. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. we're used as a ticket. You know, we were posted 
on social media as uh, an organization's success story. Like, oh, look at me. Look what we did. Like, we, we helped this survivor. We did this. And don't get me wrong. I would not be where I am today without supportive services from organizations. But it's also realizing, you know what? I did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I did the hard work. I did the healing. I I went to therapy. I did the medication. I did that. Mm-hmm. Like yes, you helped me to do that, but you didn't do it. I did. Mm-hmm. And so like calling organizations out about that stinking savior complex. <laughs> um yeah. Yeah. That's so important. Mm-hmm. Well, and you just really having the opportunity to um, share how disempowering it can feel. It almost creates a situation where in order to be successful through a program or interacting with services or connecting to resources that you do have to be more of a victim and that causes that re-traumatization. Now, there are great organizations and we're not saying that every organization is that way, um, that are very, you know, survivor led and, um, informed, you know, trauma informed, and they are, you know, proactive in, um, the people that they're, they're helping actually leading what works for them and where they end up and, and how they're able to access resources and different things like that. So we definitely want to give props. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, I know. I, I, there are amazing, amazing organizations out there. For example, the Dress Ember Foundation being one of them, they are absolutely phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's realizing that one of the principles of meaningful survivor inclusion is realizing that survivors are more than their lived experience. Like, our, our experience of being trafficked is not the only, nor is it the primary topic that we want to discuss. Like, you know, have survivors play major speaking roles, but not just to tell their story of trauma, but to actively, you know, participate in discussions about solutions um, and to demonstrate their expertise on the issue. Because that, like I said, survivor exclusion leads to tokenization and that's super disempowering and really hurtful mm-hmm. it's true so um we're we're excited to hear you talk about December because we have personal ties that we are pretty excited about yeah um what was your favorite part of uh working with December? Um, honestly, all of it. So I started an editorial internship with them um, when I was pregnant with my son. I have worked for them as a blog contributor. And now I just do some consulting work. I was recently on one of their webinars, Things Survivors Wish You Knew, which got a lot of positive feedback, um, which I can't say too much, but they kind of moved forward with another initiative built off of that. Mm-hmm which will be announced, I think they said October 3rd. So I got to be a part of that, which is really fun. Um, But they are just, they go above and beyond to, you know, ensure survivor inclusion, to ensure that survivors are empowered in the work that they do with them. Yes. Uh, And so it's just, they, they are best of the best. 
Um, I love Blythe. Uh, she is absolutely incredible. You know, even to go as far as when I do an event with them or anything like that to get, get follow-up emails. Hey, how are you doing? Like, we want to check in on you. You know, are, are, you know, are you feeling triggered? Like, are you okay? How's your heart? And that speaks volumes. It speaks volumes. Absolutely. It's amazing. I've participated for five years. This will be, this will be my sixth year doing it. But um, I've always been really impressed with the work they're doing. And uh, so that's amazing that you're one of their survivor advocates. And yes, I love them. that's really special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they're, they're amazing. That's awesome. Well, um, we are really excited. We want people to be able to connect with you. Obviously, we want to put your link to whatever December is launching soon (laughs) in in the show notes. So as soon as that is something that they've actually shared, we will add that into the show notes so that you guys can find that really easily. Um, but how do people find you if they want, you know, behind the scenes, consulting, things like that. I hear there might be a podcast. So I started one last year. um, And then just with my grad school load and things, obviously my draft were coming back. I just, it kind of fell off, but I'm hoping to, you know, relaunch it in the next couple of months. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, um, I'm pretty active on Facebook. Um, uh, LinkedIn, I'm trying to be active on that. If you want to follow more about like my professional endeavors, LinkedIn's probably the place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, you know, you can reach me by email. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll have that in the show notes. <laughs> yes. Awesome. No, that's lovely. And we want to just, you know, thank you for all this amazing work that you've done. And you know, every bit helps and it really is impactful when, you know, you're still going through your own processes and you're showing up for others. So. Yes, Hannah, it's a pleasure having you today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoy hearing stories of persons with lived experience, please rate and review wherever you're listening to this podcast. 